Hey, it's great to be here in the circle with you. Um, for those I've not met, I'm Dan Meyer. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And um, we have uh, come through one heck of a week. I know we've already observed that at the start of the service today, but I, I really want to reflect on the things that we've been through and some of what um, they may be saying to us uh, through the lens of God's word today as we prepare to come to the table of communion. And I want to draw your attention to a passage in, uh, in the gospel according to Luke, chapter 19, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. It's the story uh, there of Zacchaeus and Jesus' care for that individual. Uh, but, but towards the end, we're also led into a, um, an encounter with Jesus at the start of what Christians have come to call Holy Week. So it's the last, it's the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry uh, before the cross. Uh, this is the week where he will do something on that cross that will change history forever and open up access to a different kind of communion with God and set the pattern for another kind of community amongst human beings. So it's a big week. And Jesus and his disciples have been coming up from the valley, the Jordan River Valley, coming up through the hills, making their way towards the the tower city, as it were, of Jerusalem. And there comes a moment when they cross over what's called the Mount of Olives, which is the last ridge on the journey before you actually get to Jerusalem. And as they come over the crest of the hill, as pilgrims have been doing for generations and generations, they get this incredible view. I've been there. Some of you have been there. It's an amazing view because now you're looking out across the Kidron Valley at the Temple Mount and the gleaming city of Jerusalem. And, and often, when pilgrims going up to the holy city would get to that point in the journey, if they had not already been doing it, they would break out in song of joy at the beauty of the city, at the wonder of God's love. But when Jesus gets to that particular point in the journey, as he's entering into Holy Week, he has a different reaction. And here's what the text says. As Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. Why is Jesus crying? In fact, there's only two times in the whole of the New Testament that we hear about Jesus crying. Uh, first, when Lazarus dies, his best, one of his best friends dies, and it's ravaging the lives of his sisters who he also loves. Jesus weeps. And now he's weeping again. I think there are two reasons Jesus weeps. First, because the people of that city, Jerusalem, and the, the people of that nation, in, in a sense, um, are in such deep trouble. Uh, the country is in a perpetual state of conflict and confusion, and in fact had been for quite some time by the time Jesus arrives on the scene. Uh, there are roving bands of marauding um, killers and thieves that are moving uh, around the countryside and, and devastating, making it hard even to travel anywhere safely anymore. And that's the backdrop, by the way, of Jesus' famous story of the Jericho Road and the man who goes down and falls amongst thieves and is beaten and left for dead. Um, there's... there's there's constant conflict going on between uh, the people of Israel and the Roman occupying soldiers. 
And, and some of the people of Israel, are, a group called the Zealots, are actually making raids on the soldiers. They, they're ambushing and killing the soldiers. And the soldiers themselves are, are, are I guess, traumatized perhaps by this experience and their, or other experience in their life. And they are overreacting and overreaching in their use of power at other points, which just makes people angrier and sows more mistrust and hatred in the land. And, and particularly messed up people, and they're in every society, there are always these ones that are sort of really far out there. Uh, they're doing heinous things. They're committing murders so awful that, that crowds of people delight in coming out to see them crucified. Because there's just some deep longing for justice from people that have seen such terrible injustice and, and, and violence perpetrated. The Pharisees are fighting the Sadducees. The Jews are fighting the Romans. It's just a tremendously conflicted, confusing, difficult time. So as Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. And I'm going to actually go on a little further in the text because I think it's, there's something else illuminating here. Because he goes on and says, the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. What Jesus is talking about there, he's actually making a prophecy. Remember, Jesus is God. He can see the future. And he knows that in some years forward, as bad as it is in, in, in Israel right now, it's going to be even worse. And what's going to happen is that in the year A.D. 70, the Romans will be finally so uh, uh, unable to control the chaos and the fomenting uh, stuff in their country that they will come down, they'll crack down really hard and they'll, they'll impose massive martial law in Jerusalem and they will tear down the temple that's the great symbol of, Jew, of Jewish life. And Jesus is saying, and that's, this literally happens in history, in A.D. 70, years after Jesus says this, and Jesus is basically saying, if only you would wake up now, if you would only turn your heart back to God, and, and, and Jesus is going to make a way for that possible by giving his life on the cross. He's going to pay the price of human sin just a few days from this statement so that people could come back again to God, could find communion with him. And Jesus is going to, to, to pattern around a table, a communion table, a way of loving servanthood, washing even the feet of his disciples, that's a picture of the new kind of community that he is going to establish, a communion with God and a new kind of community. The symbol of the cross is sort of a reminder of that. Uh, if only you would take hold of this now, Jesus said, if only you would embrace what could bring you real peace, but it's hidden from your eyes. So Jesus weeps for two reasons. First, because Israel is in such trouble and God cares for that nation. Two, because people can't seem to see the fix. They don't see what would bring them real peace. They want a political solution. They, they, they think, oh, we just need a, a gentler 
Roman government or we need a more uh, vital religious Jewish government. Um, and Jesus says, no, no, the need is, so, you need a deeper kind of governance, a deeper kind of governance, something that happens within you that will change the external factors. If only you would see it. So with that powerful story as a, as a foundation, I just want to observe that I think there's some relevance for us in this tale. Uh, because it does feel, and maybe uh, you're, you feel this in yourself too, that we're living in an era where what would bring us peace so often seems hidden from our eyes. Or, or maybe we're actually closing our eyes intentionally so as we don't have to really think about it or look at it. And I cannot help but, but what, as Jesus watches this, um, he grieves also. Uh, he feels the pain of, of this also. I think we could talk about a whole bunch of different areas of the modern wilderness. Uh, and I talked last week about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And if you didn't get a chance to connect to that message, I hope you'll go back because I, there, there are some important conversation points there that I think I would love to have you interacting with me on or, or with others on. Uh, but there are, amidst all of the various potential areas where we need work as a, a world or as a society or as individual people, I want to just focus in today on the problem of mass shootings that have dominated our news cycle once again this week. I want to think about this one, this one problem. So if you're a parent whose kids are in worship with you, I will assure you I'm not going to get graphic. I'm not going to go into those kinds of places. But if you want to exercise your discretion and, and check out here at this moment, grab a cup of coffee, do something different, catch this message online later, Please, please have the freedom to do that. I'm going to simply start by observing and ask you to sort of take this in, that in the first six months of 2022, here in the U.S., there have been 314 mass shootings. We haven't had 314 days. There have been 314 mass shootings. And by mass shootings, I mean an incident in which four or more people got shot, uh, not including the shooter themselves. Uh, and, and, and even more so, these are incidences where the, the violence happened in, in a place or at a time or a setting where you think, oh, you should be safe when you're there. I mean, in a supermarket, in a school, at a holiday parade, in a church, all in all, 22,000 Americans have died from some form of gun violence since the start of this year. 22,000 have died this way. No other nation in the world, even adjusting for size, even working on a per capita basis, no other nation in the world comes close to what we have going on, this crisis in our society. Uh, it's not violence in general that I want to try and speak to whoever today, and that's a big subject. I mean, I'm not smart enough to package all of it together in one little message here. Um, but I do wanna focus in specifically on the prevalence of the kind of events that unfolded in Highland Park this week. Um, that's what I wanna focus on. I, I talked this past 
Thursday, one of my best friends is the pastor of Christ Church Lake Forest, a sister church of ours, no formal connection, just a heart connection between us. Our staff gets together and kind of thinks stuff through and, and exchanges ideas. But I talk every week to my friend Mike. That They have a church in Highland Park. A lot of their people from, from their church, from Christ Church Highland Park, have been profoundly impacted by this story. And my, my friend Mike has been involved in awful lot of grief work um, this week. Um, I heard this week from a member of our own church whose, whose relative was one of the people shot. Thankfully not killed, but shot there. I remember the stories that my state, state senator dad, who was for many years state senator in Connecticut, and was in the government there at the time of Sandy Hook, and the tragedy at the elementary school there. Remember the stories he told me about his conversations with those parents, with the people in that community. Uh, I've talked this week with another friend of mine who uh, went down to the Charleston church uh, and talked with people who were there that day when the gunman walked right into the middle of just a normal worship service and did that unthinkable thing. Um, These events, I'm not... I'm sure you know, they just, they just ravage parents, they create orphans, they tear holes in families and in communities, they render people so traumatized that they, they go around everywhere, maybe the rest of their life traumatized by it, just living always, not quite right anymore inside, feeling just shaken, feeling fearful, anxious all the time. And the thing is, this has happened in America, the wealthiest a most technologically advanced society in the history of the world. This has happened so often for so long, and we just don't seem to be able to fix it. What would bring us peace appears hidden from our eyes, or we're closing our eyes to it. So, as people who serve the Lord of life, right? And I would say that in the, within the evangelical church, we're passionate about life, right? We want to we protect vulnerable life. We care about life. And we, know we can't just do this in one zone, you know, around the abortion issue. You, we have to care about this across the spectrum of poverty and of gun violence and other things that rob people of life. We have to care about these things if we follow the, the, the biblical God. So how do we do this? That's what I'm trying to get us to, I'm, I'm gonna lay out some groundwork just to get us thinking and talking together more creatively about this. How do we do this? How do we help build a world where there are fewer tears? We know we won't be able to wipe out all tears. Uh, you know, sin and evil, they're going to be with us until Jesus comes again and makes all things new. But we can be marching in the right direction. We can be so enraptured by the vision of life in all of its fullness that we help to build a better kind of life. Well, in answering my question, uh, I want to just confess, as I mentioned last week, you know, life is a complicated garden. Fixing stuff, getting it all working right, it's complicated. There is uh, no one-step miracle grow solution to, to, this, to the gun violence issue, as with many issues. Improving conditions takes lots of inputs. It requires 
all kinds of attention to various processes that make up a system or systems. It takes people working patiently and perseveringly together. It means partnering across aisles, uh, across cultures. It, it, it requires a collaborative effort to really make the garden grow in the way that we want it to. I think the recent bipartisan legislation that was signed into law was a step in the right direction. It was a reminder that you know, now and then we can come together in spite of our differences on important matters and move things forward. But I want to speak further to some of the key inputs maybe that legislation hinted at uh, and talk about where maybe we need to go further and then unpack a few other ideas that I hope will have some bearing here. Let me just put an asterisk on this and say, you know, I don't normally go down this road. You know, I, I think it's generally the job of pastors to talk about biblical principles and biblical practices and to leave policymaking to the people. And, and uh, you know, we don't have to always agree on every aspect of policy. But because this violence has gotten so bad and has gone on for so long and now is reaching right into our communities nearby, I'm gonna blur the line between pastoring and policy suggesting just a little bit. And I hope you'll bear with me. Uh, you do not have to agree with me on all these stuff. I don't come in here saying uh, you have to step in line. You'll have your thoughts. I'd love to interact with you about it. Um, but I just feel like we should talk about it. And so I'm gonna bring it up today. The first thing I want to say is that I think we could go further in our efforts to repair a whole lot of things in our time if we could uh, be, be leaders of a movement that, that helped our society stop caricaturing people. You know what I mean by caricaturing? I mean putting them into a really narrow little box that's actually not nuanced or subtle enough or to actually reflect the reality. I'll hear people you know, describing somebody else, the other side on some issue, any issue, and the way they're describing it, I'm going, gosh, I know people who hold that opinion, but they don't actually think that way in every respect. They're, you know, they're different in this regard and that regard. It's just, that's too simplistic. It's just designed to turn them into enemies, you know? I think as Christians, we could be part of a movement that just, that when we heard caricatures said, time out, time out. These are human beings. They're more complicated than that. And one of the areas of character going on right now that I think makes the whole gun violence discussion very, very difficult is the way that, that caricaturing is done of what I would call ordinary gun owners. I think it would help if we could avoid caricaturing ordinary gun owners. And by that I mean people who may have a pistol for home protection or target shooting or may have a, a, a long gun for hunting or for uh, sports shooting. The vast majority of people who fall into that category, and I do personally, will never fire a gun at anybody. They never will. On the contrary, I think especially those who are Christians, who take Jesus at his word that those who live by the sword and will, are prone to dying by the sword are, are incredibly tuned to, to regarding the power of deadly force as something that needs to be handled very carefully and respectfully. The ordinary gun owner does not idolize guns, does not sympathize with the Proud Boys, is not a secret militia person, is not a secret survivalist. 
and yet you're hearing those caricatures all the time in our day. Caricaturing people in this way has done a lot to create anger, division, and resistance to the very reform measures we need and which people would be more inclined to consider if we were not treating them as if they were just sort of stupid ignoramuses, uh, if we were not caricaturing. The Apostle Paul says, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up. And I hope that Christians will be just a voice for toning down the rhetoric. And, and it goes lots of directions on lots of issues. It goes left, it goes right, the caricaturing. I just hope we can be a, a, a voice for wholesome, more wholesome talk. I think that could help us uh, move forward. Us, at the same time, I, I want to suggest that as followers of Jesus, I think we could advocate for more common sense measures when it comes to gun laws. Um, what I mean is more compromise measures when it comes to gun laws. Um, if you read the Bible, then you know that the ethics of Jesus are, are all about creative tensions. In fact, this is one of the things that bugs the Pharisees about Jesus, is that, you know, are you for this? Are you for this? Are you for this? You know, and, and Jesus says, eh, you know, I'm for this, and I, and, and I hold these things together. So Jesus teaches us about, uh, about being people that pursue truth uh, with a strong measure of grace, that, that care about freedom, but with a respect for the need for discipline. Uh, Jesus talks about the importance of rights and of responsibilities. And, and, and the whole ethical outlook of Jesus is this, is this elegant um, dance, almost like bicycle pedals between these various values that, that, that keep the balance and keep us moving forward in, help, in helpful ways. Um, the stubbornness with which some Christians um, resist moderation or, or, or finding creative balance uh, in our stewardship of guns is puzzling to me. Uh, it's puzzling to me. For example, I, I am really good personally, I'm just speaking as a private citizen now, I, I am good with having my National Guard trained son uh, still part of the National Guard, or the fine, many fine police officers that I know, having an assault weapon, having a, a, a very powerful instrument. They know how to use it. They have, hopefully know when not to use it. Um, I understand that, that, that threats and, uh, and danger is very real. I'm okay with them having that. At the same time, I don't want those kinds of military-style weapons in the hands of just anybody. I, 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 don't, I don't think that's good. I, I, I was a poli-sci major at a, at a decent college. I studied the Constitution. I don't think when we wrote the Second Amendment that, that, that the framers had any possibility of even being able to conceive what 21st century weaponry can do to a crowd of people. It just wasn't even in the framework of their thinking, I'm sure. Um, so why can't we as Christians advocate for 
limiting people's liberty to carry any weapon they want if it could mean fewer little coffins. You know, why, why can't we do this? We don't have to give up the Second Amendment. We just have to find ways of balancing the value of that kind of liberty with the kind of limits we need to thrive as people. Thirdly, as Christians, I know we're called to be lifelong learners. In fact, the, the, the word disciple, in the Greek, it's the word, word mathetes, means learner. It means a learner. It means the, the fundamental nature of a disciple is that they don't want to get stuck with what they already know. They want to continue to grow in their knowing. So they're wanting to know more about other people, more about the Bible, more about God. They're, they're how to live out the principles of the kingdom of God. They're just always on the learning curve. And I wonder if one of the big roles that Jesus' followers might play in our society would be to champion the value of learning from other countries that have confronted uh, this kind of, of mass shooting earlier than we have. And there are lots of examples of that. Australia would be a great example. Canada, Germany, Britain, Switzerland. They had a lot of these same kinds of events happening in their countries. They had them happening over a long period of time. There was tremendous carnage in those, those places. I lived in Northern Ireland when that kind of thing was happening a lot. It finally broke their heart. It finally broke their heart to the point where they had a breakthrough in their response to it. They stopped going numb. They stopped saying, oh, another time. There's another one of those. It, it, it touched their hearts to the point where they said, this has to change. We've had enough. And they began to restructure their societies in important ways. They got tougher about background checks and about waiting periods. They got serious about limiting access to particular weaponry. And, and they instituted gun buyback programs, just trying to reduce the total number of weapons out there in the system. They invested more of their society's resources in mental health care, a very good idea. And the, and the incidents of tragedies that, like we've seen in Buffalo and Uvalde and Highland Park and many other places, just this year alone, began to plummet in those countries. I mean, it fell off the table. It's, a, it's amazing how little of that kind of thing is going on in those countries. It's not, they're not without their problems. They're not without their incidences of violence. But so much less of the kind of thing that we've now, you know, it seemed to be normal in our society. So I read in Proverbs, walk with the wise and become wise, for a companion of fools suffers harm. Foolishness is doing the same thing all over again and, what, and expecting a different result, right? So, so walk with the wise and become wise. What, we, what could we learn from the learning of others, from other nations? And are we, are we humble enough as a people to, to say, you know what? We haven't had it right. We need to rebalance this. I also think that the violence in America today invites us to a deeper question. It invites us to wrestle with the question of where we believe our ultimate security lies. I don't think there was anybody in ancient Israel who was a uh, tougher warrior, a braver warrior than King David of Israel. 
I mean, this was the guy that was willing to go up against the biggest, baddest bully, the biggest, baddest danger to his people, that guy Goliath, the gigantic one, right? He went up with, he went out there. When everybody else was cowering, he went after the guy. He took up his weapons, and he went after that, that terrible um, bully. Um, and yet, David once wrote, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. He armed himself in the face of the legitimate threats to his life, but he was really clear that his ultimate security, the greatest hope of his people, was not the armaments. It, it was turning their life toward God and seeking to commune with God and letting that relationship inform the community relationships. It strikes me as a really strange contradiction that we are a nation with the motto, in God we trust, emblazoned on our currency and elsewhere, but we so dramatically outstrip every other nation in the world in terms of the number of guns per capita. Do you know we've got more than 400 million guns out there? There aren't even 400 million people out there. I mean, it's like, wow, a huge Difference in a nation that ostensibly is all about God and trusting Him. It just it feels like a puzzling contradiction. I think if we were demonstrably safer because of this, I would go, yeah, this is part of our Christian witness. Look at Christian America. Look how our guns are making us so much safer. Maybe you other nations should learn from us. Are you feeling safer these days? Do you feel like our world is, our, our national life is becoming safer? There's a whole lot of evidence that the ready availability of instruments of destruction leads to more destruction, especially in the hands of irresponsible people. It's one of the reasons why there's such a high rate of successful suicide is because guns are around homes. And, and not necessarily secu even secured. Um, it's why there's accidental deaths by gunshots. There's you know, bloodshed in our streets at an amazing level. And my question just is, do we need to recalibrate our sense of what security really is and where it's found? And, and do we need to, to change anything here? Okay, our time is um, running out, so I'm going to just summarize and move us to a close. I'm just trying to suggest several actions you and I might take as followers of Jesus to help shape a country where there are fewer tears going out. It seems to me that Jesus would want us to do that. Uh, Jesus called us to be, uh, his followers, to be salt and light. You've ever heard that phrase? I think you have. Um, salt is, means a preserver of life. That's what salt was used for, for preservation. And light means a pathblazer for, for, for others. And so we're called to be uh, preserving life and blazing a constructive path for other people. Here's a few ways we can do it. First, we can avoid caricaturing people. It just divides us further, makes it harder for us to work in the garden together to fix the stuff that needs fixing. Secondly, we can advocate 
for more common sense, balanced measures that dial down the risk of dangerous weapons falling into the hands of irresponsible people. We just, we just need to dial it back. Thirdly, we can be disciples and learners, not in the religious sense, but we can be learners from, we should be disciples and learners in the religious sense, but we should be learners of other cultures that are older than we are, that have confronted the problems sooner, they've had a reckoning with gun violence, and have found effective means of reducing the carnage. And finally, or fourthly, we can do some serious personal evaluation about where our security lies. And finally, we can be more fully the church, we can be more fully a people whose communion with Christ and his community with um, others uh, makes us a remarkable place of concern and care. Because that might be, actually, one of our most potent means of reducing the tears. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Uh, a few years ago, uh, a pair of psychologists, PhDs, um, named Jillian Peterson and James Densley dedicated themselves to understanding what we can, uh, what we can figure out um, about these mass shootings. What are these, how are these happening? What are we learning from them? What can be done to avoid them? And, and, they, and they, they figured this out by going into prisons and talking and interviewing uh, mass shooters and also interviewing people that had planned mass killing, killings, but did not follow through with it, and they wanted to know why. And then they talked to people who um, were in victims' families, and they talked with the associates of the killers, and they held discussions with people in the community, and a pattern began to emerge. And, and, they, and they, they said, there's some lessons here for us. The first insight is no surprise, uh, and their insight was we have a tendency to view these people as monsters, the people who do these things, and at one level, of course, they are. They are, they are what they do is monstrous. What's happened to disfigure their, their way of seeing life and seeing the value of human life is monstrous, and let's just name that. We see pictures of of Robert Cremo III, the Highland Park shooter, and we will focus on the facial tattoos, and we will see the bizarre characteristics, and we will think, oh, there is another one of those monsters. Thank goodness I've got no, none of those kinds of monsters near me. That's the mistake, Densley and Peterson says. This distancing ourselves from these perpetrators. Densley and Peterson write, mass shooters are not them. They are us. They are boys and men we know. They are our children, our students, our colleagues, our community. Obviously not all of them. <laughs> Robert Cremo III had attended more than a few times the Highland Park campus of our sister church, Christ Church of Lake Forest. He'd been in the crowd. It's the very proximity of these people that is actually a, 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 a bit of hope because it gives us some opportunity to maybe intervene before it's too late. So hold that thought for a moment. The second important insight is that nearly half of all mass shooters and 
80%, more than 80% of all school shooters telegraph what they're going to do before they do it. Um, they, they post threats on social media. They tell family or friends in person about it. In other words, most of the time, they cry out in their agony and their disfigurement and in some ways are shrieking for help. This was definitely true of the shooter in Highland Park. I think you've been following this story. You know, his dad knew oh, the, of the thoughts and the, and the uh, orientation of, of his son. Um, a number of his peers knew about it from social media and conversations. Even the local police had a lot of information about this young man's disturbed mind and vector. But what Densley and Peterson say is many people don't know what to do with that information or where to go with it, how to report it. And current laws don't allow the level of intervention that those people need. That's another policy matter we need to figure out together. Densley and Peterson say, by training ourselves to say something if we see or hear something that gives us pause, by lobbying for behavioral intervention and threat assessment teams in our schools and workplaces, and I would say in our churches, we can proactively respond to these warning signs. I would love to see this church become a training place for that kind of, of attentiveness in our community and, and, and response in our community. I'd love to see us be salt and light in that way. Third insight that Peterson and Densley offer is that mass shootings are final acts for the people who commit them. They do not plan to continue on with their life after this. They intend to die that day. They intend to die by their own hand, by the bullet of the police. It's a final act. This all means, say Peterson and Densley, that classical deterrence mechanisms like harsh punishment or armed security at the door, and I'm for both, um, but they do little to prevent mass shootings. A suicidal shooter may in fact be drawn to a location if they know that somebody on site has been trained to kill them. That's what they're out for. So rather than giving desperate people incentive to die, we must give them a reason to live, say the researchers. And I think, who better to help with that than the church? Who better than that to do that than the people who follow the Lord who said, I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. The one who said, come to me, you are tired from carrying heavy loads and I'm going to give you rest and help for your soul. Who better to be moving toward some of these people? The researchers go on to observe, fourthly, that almost everyone who has ravaged lives in all the news cycles of recent times has been a person who was themselves in crisis. A crisis overwhelms a person's usual coping mechanisms. A person in crisis is like a balloon ready to pop. But we, the church, can do so much to help with this. Uh, we can do it for people whose marriage is about to pop, for people whose relationship with their mom or their dad or their coworkers is about to pop, for people whose relationship with, with God is about to go boom. If we're 
tuned in to people's stories and to the pressures inside of their lives. You know, one of the happiest times every Sunday for me is when I watch you leave the building. It's not that I don't like you. It's I'm thinking, wow, they're going out there. All of these Jesus-formed people, they're going into workplaces, they're going into, into communities, they're going into neighborhoods and, and organizations, and they're going to be the ones who are on the lookout for people where the balloon is growing. And, and, and what they're going to do is they're going to just say, hey, you seem like you're a little stressed. Talk to me about what's going on. How are you doing? No, 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 no. How are you really doing? I want to know. I care. What are you thinking about? What an amazing force of redemption. You are the church. And one of the reasons why these days, and I'm going to do it more now, why I would say, unless there's a really good reason why you're watching online, we need you here bodily in person, is because people are moving around here who are under pressure and who need people to help them, to meet them, to have conversations with them in a way that it's much harder to do online. Um, Jesus said that the kingdom of God, which is the place where people find the flourishing God intended, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It's, it's really, it starts with small things and, and little acts, and, and even little acts of concern and care can have a really outsized kind of influence. Densley and Peterson write, the problems in the lives of mass shooters feel so massive and overwhelming, but sometimes the smallest thing can get somebody through a moment. And that's what they found by talking to the people who didn't do it. Was that at a moment of vulnerability when they might have, somebody intersected their life that changed the pressure level in some way for them. Um, and this is what they say. All we must do is let a bit of the air out for people. We don't have to completely deflate the balloon or figure out then and there why and how it got so full or make sure that it can never, ever get inflated again. We just have to do something to bring the pressure down through our concern and care. Likewise, there are little things we can even do at home Most school shooters get their guns from home, which means parents of school-age children can prevent death simply by locking up their firearms. I hope that we're all doing that if we have them. If people can't get their hands on the easiest tools to harm themselves or other people, there just will be fewer tragedies, fewer tears. And then the two researchers end by saying this, mass shootings are not an inevitable fact of American life. They are preventable. I'm for hope. I'm for things that can be done to turn things around. I think God's for these things. But I wonder if if one of you here in the building today or watching online today, I wonder if you're just somebody who at any level just needs help with the amount of pressure that's building up in your life. 
I wonder if you're feeling like maybe nobody really sees me. Nobody really understands the pressure that I'm under. Nobody would, if, even if they did understand, would care about it or do anything about it. I want you to know that Jesus sees you and he cares about you and he wants to help. And, and I want you to know that because we are Jesus' people, we do too. In fact, we're upping our game now. We want to know your story. We want to hear what's going on. We're going to be a church that invites people to tell us more about their lives. We want to pay attention to the messages that you're sending, that others may be sending, about the distress you're in. So please come experience, if you're under pressure, the blessing of communion with the great God of love. Come experience what it is to be surrounded by the community that Jesus has built. And if you'll open your heart to us, we will care for you and we will companion you until you feel hope for your life once again. This is what the church of Jesus does. We're in the redemption business. We're in the hope business. We're in the life-changing love business. And we will keep doing this until that coming day, as Revelation tells us, when there will be no more crying and pain, no more death, when tears will be no more. And I invite you to look to that day as you come to the table of our Lord and you find the grace and the peace that all of us need. Amen.